Uh, I was going to show you a picture of a guy and say you have no idea who this guy is because you don't know who this is. And even now you don't know uh, who this is even in a, in a greater way. Um, his, there we go. Perfect. Who's this guy? You have no idea who he is. All right. You might guess. What's your guess? You might, you might guess. That's your guess and it's wrong. All right. This guy is Charles Jennings. Do you have any idea who this guy is? In the 1740s, he put together a bunch of Bible verses together all around the theme of the Messiah. And sometime during July of 1741, he sent these verses to this man. And who's this guy? Mozart. <laughs> Not Mozart. Who's this guy? Handel. This is George Friedrich Handel. And Jennings sent these verses to Handel. Encouraged him to compose some music to match the words. And, and Jennings wrote to a friend about these verses he'd put together. And he says, I hope Handel will lay out his whole genius and skill upon it. That the composition may excel all his former compositions. As the subject excels every other subject. And the subject is Messiah. And on August 22nd. 1741, Handel indeed put his whole genius and skill upon composing a composition in these Bible verses. And for 24 days, he secluded himself in his London home and, and wrote music, hardly without a stop. It said that he was so engrossed in his work, he hardly ate or slept for those 24 days. And what Jennings hoped for really came to pass. This composition of Handel's far exceeded all his former compositions. And what he produced is arguably the most significant and well-known of all his works. It's called Handel's Messiah. Handel's music re re rendition of the Messiah. And here is Handel. So well is his work that it's still performed all over the world today, 350 years after its original composition. Because the subject, because of the subject matter, it's often performed at Christmas time. In fact, even here in Rockford, with the exception of COVID, every year for the past 75 years, Handel's Messiah has been played right here in Rockford. I've encouraged you all to attend their performances. They always take place. So you think Thanksgiving is always going to be at the latter end of that week. Um, Saturday and Sunday. So this year it's Saturday afternoon, November 25th, Sunday afternoon, uh, November 26th. We're talking professional soloists up front. We're talking a choir. We're talking a harpsichord. We're talking a chorus. And over the years of on night, we've attended probably a handful of these um, performances. Hope to do so again this year. We always plan to do it. Sometimes some things get in the way and it's okay. But listening to such music, I've encouraged... It's a cultural experience, right? A piece played all over the planet. It's difficult listening admits classical music, more than two hours. But the more you become familiar with it, the more exhilarating it can be. It's the most, some of the most famous music of Western culture. But listening to this music is not only... Hang on here. Am I, I'm not sure what's happening here. So maybe you can uh, operate for me or something. So you got to get closer. Um, this music, not only a cultural experience, it's also like a worship experience, as every word that's sung is from the Bible. The music has three parts. 
The first part focuses upon the prophecies from the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. The, the second part takes you to the suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus. And the third and final part of the Messiah covers the, the promised victory that we have in Jesus when sin is finally defeated. And if you're familiar with the music enough to embrace the words, reflect upon the story that the words tell, I just say it can be super worshipful for you. The first place performance of Handel's Messiah took place in the New Music Hall in Dublin, Ireland, April 13th, 1742. It was a grand, attend, a grand event attended by more than 500 people, among whom was King George II. You go to the next slide there. King George II. And that first performance, the Alleluia Chorus was played like, like we sang. And you know what King George did? Who knows? He stood up. And the audience followed suit. And it's become a tradition to this day. It's the Alleluia Chorus plays. If you go to the, the Rockville Choral Union performance of it this Thanksgiving time, Alleluia Chorus is played and everyone stands up and everyone even joins in to sing to the extent that they can. It's become a tradition really to this day. And we don't know why King George II stood up. Some say he was just tired and, and stretching his legs, taking a seventh inning stretch, if you will. Others say... I'm more likely to believe this, and he was so moved by the music, the triumphal words attached to the Lord God, the omnipotent reigning, that when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and the Messiah is pronounced King of kings and Lord of lords, reigning forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, King George could not help himself but to stand the triumphal culmination in history. And if you're familiar with these words, we, we sang today, these words ring in your mind, and he shall reign forever and ever, forever, 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 King of kings, forever and ever, and Lord of lords, alleluia, alleluia, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords, alleluia, 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 alleluia. Music's magnificent. I've hardly done it justice. We hardly did justice today, but it was, it was a great college try. It was really good. And you would have risen to your feet. And you may rise to your feet as King George II did. I don't think he was stretching his legs. As Handel himself recognized this powerful moment, this music when he led to, legend has it that when he was writing the Alleluia Chorus, a servant entered his room to find him weeping with emotion. And when Handel was asked why he was crying, he said, I did think I did see all of heaven before me as the great God himself. As he's writing this, envisioning forever and ever and ever and ever. Well, this is what we get to see this morning as we come to the Bible. We get to see all heaven before us as the great God himself. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to begin reading in uh, verse 15. So I've got to open there myself, Revelation 11, verse 15, and you'll begin to see why we sang the Alleluia Chorus and why it is that we um, have introduced Handel's Messiah, because you should see some of those words right here in this text, Revelation 11, verse 15 through 19, and then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, 
And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. Now the context of the book of of Revelation is seen here in verse 15, which signifies the, the seventh trumpet. And David, we can swipe that here, the... The, the seventh trumpet. Now, if you've been with us in the book of Revelation, you know that it's all about seals, trumpets, and bulls. Swipe it again, David. Further, you know that there are seven seals, and there are seven trumpets, and there are, are seven bulls. One more time. And so far in the book of Revelation, we've seen seven of, we've seen um, the seven seals, and we have seen six of the trumpets blow. But now in verse 15, we see the seventh trumpet blow. Now, normally when the seals are opened, right, there's some sort of judgment that comes upon the earth, wars and famines and death, right? Same is true with trumpet, right? When they're blown, right, catastrophe comes upon the earth, right? The third third of the sea creatures die or the third of the earth is burned up or the third of the heavenly lights are dimmed. Even a third of mankind is killed. But we get to the seventh seal, nothing much happens regarding judgment because the seventh seal is really what what brings on these trumpets, Um. Likewise, when you see the, the seventh angel blowing his trumpet, right, nothing much happens regarding the judgment, right? Because the seventh judgment is really what brings on the bulls, which we see in chapter 16. Nevertheless, when the seventh trumpet blows, we see the final victory of God. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It's from this verse I get the title of my message this morning. He shall reign forever. Because that's the big idea of the passage. It is the reigning of the Lord Jesus. You see it there in, in verse 15. He shall reign forever and ever. You see it there in verse 17. You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So as we begin to dig into our text, I want to first look at point one in verse 15. There we go. The loud voices. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. Now, John doesn't tell us who these voices are. They, they just come from someplace, right? Like a backstage choir, if you will. They could have been the elders. They could have been the angels. Except that in apocalyptic literature, voices don't need to come from any human being. Voices can just appear, and it doesn't matter where they come from. Now, the only thing we know about these voices is that they were, what does it say? They were loud. That's all we know about these, these voices. And so, just imagine with me these loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Just a loud voice. Only that was a loud voice. Can we say it together with loud voices? Look right there with the loud voice said, everyone. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. 
and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, I, I think we can do better. Like, try to get your volume louder than me, if you will. All right, let's just experience this together. You ready? I'm going to back off my mic. All right, here we go. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Good, good, good. What a contrast to when the, trump, the trumpets began. You remember when they began? Chapter 8, verse 1. You can look back there. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Dead silence. We're talking soundproof room. Quiet. For half an hour. The silence was representative of the solemnity of the moment as the judgment was about to be poured out upon the earth. The trumpets are given to the seven angels in chapter 8, verse 2. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were, were given to them. And in verse 7, they start to blow them. And as the trumpets were blown, the judgments upon the earth took place, and they seemingly got worse and worse and worse, killing a third of the sea creatures, finally killing a third of mankind. But then comes the end. When God takes control of the world, he becomes king, and he reigns forever and ever, and the volume is the excitement of the culmination of everything, that, that he shall reign forever and ever, because the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And the judgments of the seals and trumpets of the bulls are the ways in which God takes control of the world by destroying his enemies. And, and finally, so that he can rule and reign. In, in our family Bible reading, we're reading through the Old Testament. We just finished 1 Samuel. Saul been killed by the Philistines. David is establishing his kingdom. And how does he establish his reign? He kills his enemies. And he gathers his friends to himself, those who are loyal to him. And you see at the end of 2 Samuel, the kingdom is transferred to Solomon. Same thing. Solomon takes his reign by destroying his enemies and by gathering his friends who are loyal to himself. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. God destroying his enemies, those who shake their fists at God and hate him, and yet bringing together his friends to be with him forever. That's what the judgments that come upon the seals and the trumpets and the bulls are all about. So his reign on earth can be established with no rebellion because the rebellion has been totally smashed and wiped out. And everyone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ looks to this day with fond affection. Right? We long for the day when our, our Lord will rule and reign. Right? Just the next slide there, David. This is why on our, our theme for Revelation, it's this. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? This is the longing of that day, the longing of every believer of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus would come to rule and reign that he would come to reign not only in our hearts, but also for all the world to see. I just say, is that the longing of your heart? Do you pray as Jesus taught us to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Oh God, you bring your kingdom because I want you to reign. And this, Revelation 11 and verse 15, is the answer to that prayer. The kingdom of God has come in its finality. Now, what's most striking about this passage, I find, is the location of this passage. 
It's right in the middle of the book of Revelation. Revelation has how many chapters? Again, I forgot. I didn't forget. 22. And we're in chapter what? 11. That's like, we're at the end of chapter 11. So we're like, we're like right in the middle of the middle of the book. And we see the final victory halfway through Revelation. And by the way, the Alleluia Chorus comes at the end of part two of Handel's three-part Messiah. And I've always been struck by that. You go to the Handel's Messiah and you'd think that the Alleluia Chorus is going to be right at the end. That's where it's going to finish. But it's kind of right there in the middle. It's about the seventh inning, if you will. It is a seventh inning stretch. It's just right there. How, 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 how can this be? And I think this ought to help you understand the book of Revelation. That it's not strictly chronological. With the seals followed by the trumpets, followed by the bulls. Uh, David, can you swipe there? Like, like here, like some people like think of Revelation like this, that, that the seals gotta be first, and then they gotta go to the trumpets, and then you gotta go to the bulls. One more. There are some who think of it's an overlap in time, and then one more. And it's not like the first seal corresponds to the second seal. Right? They they all they all like, like crunch, because here we have the seventh trumpet like right there at the end. And Revelation, I think, in many ways, just recapitulates and tells the same story over and over again. And we're going to see that especially next week when we get to chapter 12. But the story of the woman and the dragon kind of steps back and sees, well, what the, what's the church all about? So Revelation, oh, you see all these visions, and, and you gotta, they're, they're not all sequential. They come back and forth, and I think that's the key here, why Revelation 11, right in the middle, is the, is the triumphant everything. It's not all waiting towards the end. It's kind of a sneak pre- preview if you will. And, and, and we're going to see this again in Revelation chapter 18. Babylon is finally destroyed once and for all. In chapter 19, we see the final hallelujahs. You can turn over there to chapter 19. <clears throat> and this is where right the hallelujahs come again. And after this, I heard what seems to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia! Salvation and glory belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He's judged the great prostitute, that's Babylon, of chapters 17 and 18, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, this is a second, Alleluia, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped the God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. There's a third, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder. Again, this volume aloud, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty or Omnipotent, reigns. Let us exult, rejoice and exult, and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And handles Messiah. Ties Revelation 19 and Revelation 11, right, two-thirds through the peace, right? Submits so the same way that Revelation works. not a linear story. It's a story that, that repeats and goes over, but shows over and over and over again relentlessly of how God will someday rule the earth. And his rule, when it comes, will be forever and ever. Can you swipe one more time? And again, verse 15, right? This is, this is the point, the loud voices. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And forever is a long time. It's beyond our understanding. Think about Daniel chapter 7, which you read today, Brandon. But the saints of the Most High um, shall receive the kingdom and possess their kingdom forever. 
forever and ever. Like it's forever is there, they're twice, just trying to emphasize how long this is. Forever is beyond our understanding. John Newton tried it. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So even when God has reigned for 10,000 years, the length of his reign has not decreased even a single day. It's the message of Revelation. Who do you want to worship? You want to worship a president who after four years is gone? Out of power. Maybe eight years. Or do you want to worship a dictator who reigns for life? Or do you want to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords who reigns forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? I mean, you can choose who you want to worship. I'll take the one who reigns forever and ever and ever, always on top. That's what Revelation teaches. Jesus will reign. He will win. Are you going to be on his side? Are you going to fall by the way with the seals, trumpets, and bowl judgments? There's much talk today about being on the right side of history. That is, living today with the cultural attitudes of the next generation today. But if you really want to be on the right side of history, how about line up with the one who's going to reign forever and ever and ever and ever? That's being on the right side of history. Bow the knee to Jesus. Trust in him. Well, let's move on. We've seen the loud voices. Our, our second point here is we got the worshiping elders. We see this in verses 16 through 18. And the elders are introduced right there in verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. We've seen these elders before. They came up in Revelation 4 and 5. And we saw them around the throne, sitting on their thrones, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. We read in Revelation 4 verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In Revelation 5, we see the same things. The elders right, get off their thrones and they bow down. The elders fell down and worship. Revelation 5, 14. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation 7, we see the same thing. Revelation 7, verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And here in Revelation, we see these elders worshiping the Lord. It's almost as if these elders were created with one purpose in mind, that they would be worshipers of God. In fact, the other two times that we're going to see the elders in Revelation, Revelation 14, verse 3, and 19, verse 4, we're going to see them worshiping the Lord as well. And verse 17 tells us the word they say in their worship. We sang our songs today. Here's what they say in their day. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The elders begin with a word of thanks to the Lord God Almighty. They identify him as, as him who is and who was. That might sound strange to yours. 
Does it sound strange to any of your ears? Him who is and who was. <clears throat> well, in Revelation, whenever it describes God like this, it's usually threefold. Focusing on his past, present, and future. Revelation 1.14, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Present, past, future. Revelation 1 verse 8, God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come. Present, past, future, like all time. Revelation 4 verse 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Past, present, future. But here God's recognized as him who is present and who was. What did he leave out? Who is to come. But left out the future. Why? Because he's there. He's there. He is and he was. I don't have to say who will come because he already come. He, he's there. He's not going to come in the future because that's already happened this point in the future the 24 elders point out the Lord has come begun his reign that's why the elders give thanks to God we give thanks to you Lord God Almighty who is and who was for because you've come and you've taken your great power and have begun to reign this by the way has been the longing of God's saints for all time that God would come and rule and reign Isaiah 64 1 oh that you would rend the heavens and come down right Oh, come, Lord Jesus, that you would come, that your kingdom would come. Psalm 144, verse 5, bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Come, rescue us, deliver us now. This is the cry of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6, in verse 10. When they're underneath the altar, longing for justification, they say, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood with those who dwell on the earth? How long until you come and judge? When are you going to avenge our blood? And the promise of Scripture. Throughout the Scripture is always that he will do this. Psalm 110 verse 5. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Daniel 7 verse 27. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. Isaiah 9 verse 4. Of the, or 7 I think. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Micah 4, verse 7, The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And, and here in Revelation 11, this point in history, the longing of the saints has been satisfied. God is on the throne and has begun to reign. You see that right? You've taken your great power and executed the judgments. And now you're sitting down and you have begun to reign. Now, it's not that he hasn't reigned before. But there's something about this time in Revelation 11 that, that starts his reign in fullness. In Psalm 110, Jesus is seen sitting at the right hand of God, waiting for a time when his enemies would be subdued. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? There's, there's always this anticipation. There's going to be a time when someday they will be made a footstool. So we sang, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journeys run. Like just this promise and the hope, Jesus will reign. He will reign. But now in Revelation 11, this time has come. The elders acknowledge it. They give thanks to God for so doing. And in verse 18, we see the whole story. The nations raged, but your wrath came. It's an allusion to Psalm 2. I mentioned this psalm last week because 
of what we see the world doing to the two witnesses. The world was raging against them. But God was patient and he had the last laugh. Again, I read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast away their cords from us. Right? The high-handed rebellion. We hate the Lord. We hate his anointed. We're going uh, to tear them apart. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then the promise of victory comes. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I've set my king upon Zion, my holy hill. And just wait a little bit. The promise comes in Psalm 110, Psalm 2, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And the promise of Psalm 2 comes to fruition in Revelation 11. The nations rage, but your wrath came. You established your son upon the throne and you said, bow to him and kiss the son. The nations raged, your wrath came. You opened the seals, you blew the trumpets. Even though, it's interesting, the bulls haven't happened here yet in Revelation. And the bulls are practically synonymous with the wrath of God. The nations raged, but your wrath comes. So it's almost assuming the bulls at this point have already happened. Revelation 16.1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. But here in Revelation 11, it's done. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And then the elders continued, And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your saints, the prophets, your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is the reality of the future. There will be time of judgment. God will judge the wicked, and he'll reward his servants. Notice how the servants of God are described. They're described there as the prophets and saints. They're the prophets, probably the leaders of God's people, and the saints, the, the hoi polloi, all who believe in Jesus. And, and note here also just in, in the Bible when it says saints, it's not some lofted category of some exalted sort of person who lived an especially holy life. Saints are everybody. Washed, pure. That's who he's talking about. The, the God will reward his servants, both the prophets who lead God's people and the saints' people are God. But fundamentally, these people are also described as those who fear your name, both small and great. Fundamentally, this is what it means to be saved, is to fear the Lord, to realize that he's the one that you need to give account to. It's to the Lord, right? Fearing this one is going to come and rule and reign. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? Fear the Lord. Realize that he's the king. He's the one. He's the one that you need to bow to and submit to. Right? The application from a message this morning is clear, right? Fear God. We, we read Psalm 128 prayer meeting today. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Who walks in his ways. That's what it means to fear the Lord, is to, to realize, right? He is Lord. He's sovereign. And just like we, we obey a king or a president, right? We, we obey the Lord. We bow our knee to him. That's what it means to be saved. What it means to fear God. Realize he's going to come and rule and reign forever and ever. And we want to be on his side of the battle that he's going to win. And we'll either be on his side 
and join with him forever or will be destroyed. It says, for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. And who destroys the earth? Those who continue in their sin. Those who continue in rebellion against God. Those who hate the Lord and hate his anointed. God will destroy those. He'll take care of those. You don't have to worry about it. Fearing God is the eternal gospel. You can turn over to Revelation 14. We'll get to this after I get back from Nepal. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. This is the eternal good news. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. There's the gospel, right? Fear the Lord. Bow your knee to him, to King Jesus. All right, my last point. We've seen the loud voice of the worshiping elders and now we see the open temple. Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. At the beginning of chapter 11, John was told to measure the temple. You see that right there in in verse 1. He's given a a measuring rod. And we ask, right, what what temple is this? Was it Solomon's temple or Zerubbabel's temple or the temple that Herod built or some future temple? I said it doesn't really matter because of what the temple means. It's the people of God where they, they assemble. But... Perhaps it was this heavenly temple that God that John sees here. I see God's temple in heaven. You think, well, does God have a temple in heaven? This is apocalyptic. Yes. Well, at the end, no. But the, the temple, what it does, it, it signifies the, the presence of God. And maybe this heavenly temple was the original temple that Moses was shown when he was to build his. Hebrews 8, verse 5. When Moses was about to erect the tent... He was instructed by God saying, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Right? There's, here's this pattern that was shown you. Right? Where, what's, what's this pattern? Was it on blueprints? Maybe. Or was it a heavenly temple? Maybe that's it. At any rate, right, John sees this temple. And it was opened. Meaning that there's, there's access there. Is what's signifying here. The, the, the temple signifies access to God. And, and the idea here is that God is reigning forever. But not only is he ruling and reigning forever, but his saints have access to him. He's in the White House with his doors wide open, access to him for eternity. In fact, this is the fundamental promise for eternity, is that we will be with God forever. He will be our God. We will be his people. Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This whole idea of the temple being opened is the whole culmination of history. Is that God's people will be with him. The temple John saw, the Ark of the Covenant. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of his Covenant was seen within his temple. Indiana Jones has helped make this Ark of the Covenant public like like what this this whole thing is but the ark was the symbolic of how it is that we are made right with god and indiana jones maybe was looking for the ark of the covenant but here john sees it he sees this ark which was probably destroyed and melted down in babylon it's probably what happened to this ark of the covenant but this ark was symbolizing how we make right with god it was a place of the yearly sacrifice when the high priest would, would enter the holy place once a year. Not with blood that was his own, right? He would offer a sacrifice, and then he'd go into the temple, and he'd take it, and he'd sprinkle it seven times upon the altar to cleanse himself. 
So he can go outside and offer the sacrifice for the people and then come into that temple again and by himself, right, give that once yearly sacrifice for all the sins of all the people of Israel. And this once sort of sacrifice, you can read about in Leviticus 16, this once sacrifice, once a year for all the sins of all the people is a symbol of the sacrifice of Jesus. This one sacrifice for all time, for all who would believe. His single sacrifice for us. Hebrews 9 verse 24 says, For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but, but Jesus went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And, and maybe that's the symbol here of the ark is just, just Jesus coming in and with the ark having a sacrifice right there within the temple signifying that we are made right with God. Not only can we enter his temple, but through the ark and through the sacrifice there we can be made right with God. And then we see just all these things around what, what John saw. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. Sounds so much like the, the throne room scene, does it not, from Revelation chapter 4? From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were, were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Just this, this before the throne of God. That's, that's what John sees. He saw it when, when he was in Revelation chapter 4, seeing what heaven is like. And now here another throne room scene. This is what he sees God to be like. And in some sense, that's what God is like perhaps forever. An unapproachable light. Well, Revelation 11 teaches us that God will reign Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And here we get a glimpse of what things will be like when history reaches that eternal state. And we'll see this more and more as we work our way through Revelation. So I hope that stirs your heart. I mean, lots of ways that can be applied in terms of trusting the Lord with all things. I mean, Brandon prayed for anxiety in light of this. Yeah, God is on the throne. And the events that took place yesterday... In Israel, we have every reason to fear of, of just the, the attacks in the Middle East, which is a powder keg. And if something is like that, that can bring in much worldwide distress. But if we have a God who's going to rule and reign forever, we can be okay. These sorts of things don't need to stir our hearts into a nervous anxiety. Because the rest of Revelation 11 is that he will reign and we see a picture of what it's like when he actually reigns. And when he rules and reigns in your heart, there can be a contentment and a trust there that will surpass all understanding. So may this just secure us deep in him. May it also, like application-wise, urge us to bow the knee to Jesus. who's going to be the one to rule and reign, right? We, we want to bow our knee to the one who reigns forever, being on the right side of history, being with him forever. Loving him as, as a father and a son and as a God and as people. Right? Together just with great fellowship with the Lord. Bowing and trusting Jesus. That's what this text teaches us. So let's pray. Father, I pray just as we think about the end and we get a glimpse here to see what the end will be like. When you subdue all your, energy, all your enemies and when you bring to you all of your servants, prophets and saints alike, small and great. We're all together, being rewarded with salvation, avoiding the punishment because of the punishment you took, you brought on Jesus Christ. 
worthy as a lamb was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. Worthy you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. O oh Lord, it's to you and it's to the, the Lamb that we give great praise and honor today. Secure us in these words. Give us comfort and strength for this next week as we, as we come to it. As we think about life, we think about the uncertainties in the Middle East with even the war Russian-Ukraine just on our minds, that, that things can escalate. God, but may we, as your people, find great comfort in you and cast all our anxieties upon you and live a, a God-trusting life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.